0: we we'll Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Blended. I'm joined by another amazing group of professionals. And today we're all about the positivity because we're talking about organizations that are doing good. We can all be guilty of, a, of being a little bit cynical sometimes when it comes to brands, especially big ones, and their impact on the world. Greenwashing and pinkwashing have both been well publicized in recent years as we strive towards achieving greater sustainability and more diverse cultures in business. But there are so many organizations that are doing great things, not just saying them and making a positive impact in our world. And this episode is dedicated to them, to what we can learn and how we can all be inspired in our personal and professional lives to do better. So a big welcome to Leslie, Emily, Serena and Amy, who are going to share their thoughts and experiences with us today. And I am so grateful that they decided to join me today. So let's get started with some introductions. Can you each tell me who you are, what you do and how you identify? So I'm going to start with you, Leslie.
1: Thanks for having me, Sarah. And it's so lovely to be with all of you other women today. Um, I'm Leslie Hitchcock, and I am the executive director and co-founder of Next Economy Trust, a media and production company founded upon the principles of data diversity diversity and inclusivity and accessibility. How I identify, uh, she, her. I'm also an American immigrant living in London. I'm a feminist. I'm a runner. I'm an autodidact, a wife. A mom and a dog mom.
0: What is an auto? What did you say? Autodidact autodidact. What is that? Self-educated.
1: Oh. Beyond beyond a undergraduate degree.
0: I'm gonna start using that. Thank (laughs) you very much, Leslie. Listen, we are two (laughs) seconds into this conversation and we're all
2: walking away with something that we've learned today.
0: (laughs) All right, I'm super glad that you're here with us, Leslie. Now, Serena, let's go to you next.
2: I am Serena Mastin and I uh, own Pulse Marketing. We're at the heart of creative and uh, celebrating our 10 years in business this year. Hey. I'm also the author of Exposed You Can't Heal When You Hide. Um, and I um, my pronouns are uh, she and her. Um, I am a mother. I have a 22 year old son and a 17 year old daughter. And, uh, both are incredible and I'm just so grateful to be a part of this and to be surrounded by such beautiful women.
0: Yes. And I'm so excited for you to be here. You have quite the story that you're going to share with us and you've really turned it into positivity within your organization and the people that you work with. So excited to hear a little bit more about that. Thank you, Serena. Over to you, Amy.
3: Yes. Hi, my name is Amy Willard Cross. Um, She/her. Her. I'm the founder of Gender Fair. Previously, a editor, writer, journalist, and um, my work is around showing people how organizations serve women. So um, I'm looking forward to delving into this conversation today with all of you. Thank you.
0: I love that somebody. I had a friend of mine send me a picture that um, it was like a. Uh, a leadership table for one of these organizations and it was all white men and she was like how in 2023 is this still happening it makes me so mad but i won't tell him but i'm very mad right now (laughs) anyways i'm excited for
4: you to be here amy emily last but not least welcome Hi. Uh, thanks for having me, Sarah. I'm Emily Patrick. I'm the chief strategy officer at Care Impact Partners, which is the corporate advisory arm of Care U.S. I primarily lead our supply chain service line where we help Fortune 200 companies basically to integrate social impact into their core business operations. While I've been at Care for four years, I've actually been working in the at the intersection of international development and global supply chains for the last decade. And. Uh, Beyond kind of my professional role, a little bit about me personally, I identify as a Caucasian woman. My pronouns are she, her, and outside of work, I am a partner, a home jungle curator, and although I'm originally from the East Coast, I'm definitely a West Coaster at heart. Uh, I strive to always have a growth mindset, and I truly believe in the power of business to make a positive impact, so I'm super excited to explore that today.
0: Yes, I am too. And for anybody that didn't understand the jungle thing, she is a plant parent. (laughs) We talked about this earlier, and I just wanted to put that into context. She doesn't live in a jungle. She's a plant parent with lots
4: of plants. (laughs) 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 Sorry, what did you say, Emily? I've also got one cat. So I guess I'm in the fur baby category as well. Just not the
0: case. We love our fur babies here at Blended and let's talk supply chain. All right. So for context, let's start by just talking about the power that businesses have in this world. We talk a lot about personal responsibility, you know, having reusable coffee cups and water bottles, reusable bags for the store, saying no to plastic straws. I know that last year when I was thinking about New Year's resolutions, I had challenged everybody to pick something that had to do with doing good in the world rather than thinking about something that we had to change about ourselves physically. And um, And so, but I think the the impact that businesses have is far beyond what we can do personally. And I think it's important that businesses step up and show and do, right? Because I think act is the biggest point of this conversation today. So why is it so important for businesses to take a proactive approach to doing
3: good? Amy, I'm going to start with you sure one because it's scale right and 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 to ask individuals to fix these problems that are systemic is absolutely cruel especially when it comes to women like what, what what a lot of our work is about women in the in the workforce but so if you're trying to make women change the workforce to and fix women to change this is entirely unfair i mean think of all those sort of lean in stuff people were fed about asking for a raise well that's wrong there should be pay transparency there should be equal fair systems like it's it's to put the burden on a woman or a disadvantaged person to fix these systems that were built not for them is absolutely wrong so i uh, that's why i decided to work in corporations i was very inspired by what the human rights campaign did by just measuring lgbtqi um, policies in American workforces, they changed the policies in 1,500 companies. So my feeling, is there's no reason why women can't do that if they make it very clear that we are watching and we are hoping for this change. But I really, I do feel like there's been so much, but all these issues, even in the environmental issues, has to come back to legislation and government and protection and regulation.
0: Mm-hmm. And
3: just what I do individually, I realized years ago, just doesn't matter. So I love that, the idea of acting in scale. And I love what the 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 what is it called the world business alliance does they they looked at the 2,000 largest companies in the world they decided they were to try to change those and that's a great approach yeah that's enough of me but yeah it's like individuals this is not our burden our individual burden is now to work together to create change that we need the world to work together to get legislation that we need to get corporate changes well, and keep
0: planting um, yeah. that seed. I think keep putting that pressure on is maybe our role as individuals. But I will say to um, add some context to what you just said, we, a friend of mine were, were a part of this group and the group had said, well, at the next event, we are gonna put bags together for shelters. And we want we want the diversity and inclusion committee to spearhead that. My girlfriend was like, "Why do we, as diverse voices, have to put something like that together to help other diverse voices? Absolutely,
3: right? It's so it's so absurd. It's so absurd. Like these ERGs for women have to like uh, at their best, their unions can advocate or or ERGs for Black Americans to advocate for. But it's it's really unfair asking the people with the least power to create the most change. And well, um, and it's I totally."
0: It's not like we don't want to do it. That's not the point. The point is that we need to bring other people in who are not underrepresented voices to actually do the work and get them included and things like that. So I'm glad that you brought that up. The, Thank you so much, Amy. All right, they Emily. Have, they have the power to do
3: that.
4: Yeah. Emily. Emily. Yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more, right? Corporations have a tremendous impact on their on the ecosystems in which they operate from, you know, obviously within the factory walls, but of course, all the way down to the first mile of their supply chain. And so I'd love to talk a little bit about it from the kind of the supply chain perspective, mm-hmm. because companies are basically dependent on the ecosystems in which they operate, right? It's not only important for businesses to take a proactive approach to doing good, I'd actually argue that it's like absolutely critical to their long-term success, specifically when we're looking at a supply chain perspective. And so just A little bit of my personal background, I think I mentioned this earlier, but over the last decade, I've probably been to 30 different countries working in supply chains and that smallholder farmers through big factories to companies that make the clothes that all of us are wearing to being in kind of boardrooms with C-suite and at B2B businesses. And across kind of every one of those experiences, the one thing that I would consistently take away is that like supply chains are at risk. There's a lot of incredible work that's happening, but when you truly look at supply chains and the people that are making all of our products possible, there's a lot of poverty, there's a lot of inequity, and the poverty and the equity and the climate crisis actually kind of drive that really intense supply chain risk that exists. Um, Just a couple of quick stats that I think are important for framing. There's 4.5 billion people in the world that derive their livelihoods specifically from agriculture. When we look at... Supply chains? Yeah, it's enormous. When we look at corporate supply chains, it's estimated that up 70% of farmers that are participating in corporate supply chains are living below the poverty line. So when you think about risk in a supply chain and the deep risk that comes with poverty, it's really substantial. Um, Those households face food insecurity, they struggle to access uh, viable economic opportunities and formal finance, and they're often unable to cover basic expenses like medical services and education. And of course, as I'm sure all of us on this call know, women in particular bear a disproportionate burden, right, when it comes to, to the challenges at the household level. And so all of these kind of human challenges or social risks that exist create massive instability in supply chains, which goes back to what I just mentioned around this is actually a business imperative beyond it being the right thing to do. So when we look at the business risks, we're talking about things like imagine a CPG company, right? Maybe a a chocolate company or a a tea company, whatever. Um, Raw materials are becoming really hard to get because volumes and quality are being by the climate crisis, by the poverty and supply chains. In a lot of agricultural supply chains, the next generation of farmers is actually disappearing because it's not viable for them to earn a living income. And so they're moving to urban areas as a way to get more money and be able to survive for their families. And then you have factory environments, which are really, really hard working conditions for women. And it increases costs, it lowers productivity, there's high turnover. So those are all some of like the business risks, right? At the same time as you have that happening in the upstream part of a supply chain, you also have um, challenges that are happening downstream, right? So you have this ongoing, evolving regulatory environment at the same time as customers like demanding more. Mm -hmm. And so you essentially have brand reputations kind of hanging in the balance based on what's happening in their supply chain because it's so so much more transparent. Um, And so when you... When you're able to show up as a good custodian in your supply chain, you can contribute to things like gender equity, community resilience, and so much more, but From my perspective, and a lot of the work that I actually do is to help companies to frame that around the business case Mm -hmm. so that you're actually integrating social impact as a core function of the business and that there's justification internally. So it's not just doing good, but it's doing good with a business purpose as well. So I know you mentioned a couple of the things like retention and increases in productivity. It also improves brand reputation, creates long term value for shareholders, Mm -hmm. and most importantly, drives value for the people that make supply chains possible.
0: Well, and you have to, you have to meet them where they are, right? You have to understand what drives them and what drives their decision-making and how are they going to change that decision-making is with that business case. And so with those kind of statistics, and thank you for sharing that, it's crazy if we don't, right? From a business standpoint, um, it's not just socially good, like you said, um, but And it's just crazy to me how much impact and influence supply chain has on all of these different issues, including sustainability. And we've only really just heard that word or those words in the mainstream
2: in the last two to three years. Like We should have been working on this a long time ago. Serena. So I think it's important also to look at it from um, um, outside of, of supply chain and also look at it as an... Uh, business owner as an entrepreneur, um, a service-based company. How do you? How do we um, lead that same initiative? And so, some of the things that we've done in our organization is we've given everyone a voice. And so, people say that, but we actually do that. So, one of the things that we did um, is we asked our team members to actually identify what our core values were as a company, mm-hmm. so that we were all living and breathing the same core values. Those are fundamental pieces of the puzzle, because it starts with me. It starts with the leader. And then it also like transforms and grows with every individual that feels heard. So when we did that process, not only did we establish the core values within our company, serving others first, right? Things like that, that really speak to who we are. It then brought us to this next level, what's important to each individual. So now we're including them in a different way. One of the things that was important was um, giving back, serving others, doing something beyond just the serving our clients, but serving a bigger picture. So we actually created a program within our organization called uh, Generosity Hours. So our team members actually get reimbursed for any volunteer hours that they contribute, um, and they have up to 10 hours per quarter. And so that not only initiates this, they they feel empowered to give back, they feel empowered to make a change and have an impact. But in addition, we're actually... Not just encouraging it, we're incentivizing it because it's something mm-hmm. that's valuable to them. They're not, they don't feel pulled in two different directions. They feel like it's something that we all believe in. So we look at that in many different ways. One of which is identifying which nonprofits or which social impact associations or programs are important to them. And then sometimes we actually donate our time as an agency to serve nonprofits in order to get them in a position where they can actually share and expand and spread the word. Um, But yes, so in both sides, looking at it from a supply chain, a political perspective, but also looking at it from what as a business owner, what we can do, some of those little things make the biggest impact.
0: Yes, and to empower your team. But I think one of the most important things that you said that we falter as organizations, businesses, et cetera, is that you give them the volunteer hours, but not necessarily incentivize them to do it. Because like you said, they're pulled in two different directions. (laughs) If I go and take those volunteer hours, I might not get paid. And maybe I need that money because inflation and groceries are high and things like that, right? Um, But what you're also doing is putting your money where your mouth is. And I think that's, you know, kind of what Emily is saying as well. And Amy is saying too, is that we need organizations to put their money where their mouth is and actually do the actions so that we can see the impact. And you are living that. So thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. Leslie, you want to jump in here and shed some light about how important it is for organizations to get involved?
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting because in in prepping for this conversation i was thinking about um you know organizations other than mine that i that i could uh, you know think of that um are doing this type of work and are you know making making these types of um commitments to you know the environment and to their people and to us. And um, one of the ones that I came up with it's interesting, it kind of ties into what Emily was talking about, is um, a company here in the UK called Oddbox, and we use Oddbox, like O D D Oddbox. And it's 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 um uh it's a small company, social enterprise, B Corp that um helps farmers in the UK rescue uh, fruit and veg vegetables that would otherwise be wasted, Um, which is good on all sorts of fronts, right? Um, One of the things that I was really fascinated by when I moved from the U.S. here was the quality of food um, and the uniformity of food and in the in london specifically in in outside of london in like more rural areas there are twice weekly farmers markets in these what they call market towns which are kind of like smaller not villages but you know not too far not too much bigger than villages but they they come together farmers local farmers bring their produce there um but in london there's not there're not a lot of farmers markets and in san francisco i experienced a lot of them so you know it's all of this like culture um you know getting used to different cultures but what, what happens here in supermarkets is that the, the food has to be uniform. And that and was um, an EU regulation, but now K okay, UK is no longer in the EU. It's a hangover. And so, you know, all of the pink lady apples that my son likes to eat are the exact same size and the exact same color and, you know, just completely uniform. But, you know, if you go to an apple tree in an orchard, that is not the case, so what happens to the ones that are not, um, you know, not, not meeting those standards? And so what was happening before company, the company Oddbox and and I'm sure others like it came around was that you know, they were they were just being wasted. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, it's because of, econ- um, you know, environmental problems, like, you know, there was a lot of rain. And so your know, potatoes are late, <laughs> but it's not potato buying season for the big supermarkets. And so these farmers are left out of pocket with all of these potatoes that they can't do anything with. And so, or they're tiny, tiny potatoes, which, you know, I think are really cute, but you know, waitrose isn't going to buy and package and sell. And so it was, um, you know, to me it was, we, we get an odd box every other week and, um, and we absolutely love it because, you know, we feel good about greenhouse gases emissions being reduced and, you know, food waste being being um, reduced, but also they've done a really amazing job with their marketing around, you know, teaching families or teaching homes how to reduce food waste in homes, because apparently 70% of food in a house will go to waste here in the UK. Um, And so they do these really interesting, um, you know, tutorials, videos, recipes, et cetera, on their social media. And so they kind of like, you know, manage this whole process in a really creative way, top to bottom um that that makes me feel good about my buying choices but also you know it, it's kind of this combination of i feel like i'm making a personal impact but also you know i can see that there is like they they send out a little leaflet with every every box of you know how much um food they rescued how much carbon that would have been if it were decomposing mm-hmm. in a you know landfill or wherever it was and you know all of this stuff and it's like yes, you care about this. And and that makes me care even more about you. And then the last thing I'll say, which is, you know, um, looking at things with an underrepresented hat, including socioeconomic um, underrepresentation. But if we're going out of town and we don't need our odd box, we do not have the option to skip that week, mm. but we do have the option to donate it to a family that's in need. And that's, awesome. you know, that's critical. Like that's, that to me is, was kind of the icing on the cake, like knowing that, that this is, you know, they, they've, they've yeah. considered all of the different angles and they're building a successful business. Um, yeah. I really admire it.
0: So you bring up two really interesting, um, or observations for me anyways, is that one, you're talking about supply chain, which goes back to what Emily was talking about yeah. and how important an integral supply chain is to organizations doing good. But mm-hmm. second of all, I think it's also about awareness of what organizations are out there. And I feel like if organizations could just go and get some information on a variety of different things that their teams could do, like, you know, pamphlets, put put some pamphlets out around Oddbox for food if people are interested in that you know, and I think that we could do a better job as organizations to empower our teams to have the knowledge of what organizations are out there that they can be passionate about and they can, they can actually do good by either buying from them or, you know, donating to them or volunteering with them. I think it's also just a lack of awareness. And it's interesting, Leslie, that you bring up food. So food has been coming up for me a lot. Like I really feel, like the universe is trying to tell me something. And one of the organizations that I wanna bring up is um, founded by Claudia Knowlton sheik She was head of supply chain for Facebook and Google. She's now retired, but she founded the Food Supply Chain Coalition during the pandemic. And if you go to foodsupplychaincoalition.org, you can learn more about it. But basically, they're doing exactly what you were talking about. And they're saying that today there are 50 million people in the U.S. who do not have enough food to eat. But at the same time, billions of pounds of food continue to be wasted. And so they've come up with this technology, and I think it's coming out in a couple of months. So definitely go and check them out. But I feel like food is such i – I don't want to use the word easy – because it's not easy. But there's a lot of people who are very aware of food scarcity, and what is happening with the inflation, obviously on on food prices. And then I go to conferences, and I'm like, all of that food, like, where is it going? (laughs) Because there's so much wasted food. And I almost I think about do you guys know about the soap guy? He's gone to all the hotels, and he takes all the um, the soap bars that either haven't been used or are half used or whatever, and he's turned it into a business where he actually then, I think, resells or donates soap to people. Uh, because there was so so much waste when it came to soap in hotels. Mm -hmm. And it almost sort of reminds me of that when I'm at conferences, like, how do we fix this? But again, it comes down to supply chain, it comes down to organizations and what they can bring to the table as well, right? Emily, did you want to jump in here? Because I feel like you want to add something.
4: Um, no, you know, I think that it, in, in line with talking about like organizations that are, are doing good. Um, Leslie, I love that example. I of course have like a very, um, focused perspective on multinational corporations because those are the partners that I work with most frequently. Um, and so I can't exactly share like who's doing what and how, cause I tend to be more involved in corporate strategy, but I would love to share a couple of things that I see as like promising practices that are really kind of um, industry leading and have the potential to, to make change, if that's yeah. a good this co- part Perfect. of the conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah let's do it. Yeah. yeah. So if I was thinking about a couple of kind of key things that I see changing in an industry level that I think will really help to move the needle in this space going forward, um, the first would be that when I think about kind of pioneers, I think about companies that are um, moving away from kind of the traditional structure of corporate social responsibility. Right, I don't know. Everybody has kind of different perspectives on this, but the way that I think about CSR is that sometimes it was it was built out of kind of a mandate, like many many decades ago, and um, there was a little bit of like a a, uh, a vibe to it, which was I'm going to give you guys some money, a nonprofit, whoever do some good stuff, write as a postcard, don't make us look bad. And like, that was kind of the end of it, right? That's, of course, evolved dramatically. Um, But what I'm seeing is that people are moving away from kind of that traditional structure um, and architecture of CSR to a more integrated approach where they're looking at initiatives that impact their direct community, maybe at where their headquarters are, or they're looking at their supply chain where they're seeing kind of all these risks that may exist, some of which I mentioned earlier. Um, So I think that shift is happening. Everybody's at a very different point in their journey, but that's definitely kind of underway. Um, Connected to that, I think moving away from CSR really ladders up to the next big shift that I'm seeing um, from industry industry leaders, which is companies are starting to embed social impact and sustainability into their core business operations. Um, And that means everything from teams, the processes, the incentive structures, all of it. Um, And I think that that's really because they've realized that so long as sustainability remains siloed with no contingent conductive tissue kind of binding it to those core business functions, it's really difficult for a company to make meaningful and lasting change or progress on the areas they're trying to focus on. And so that embedding is really happening. And I think that it's happening through kind of two key areas. One is leveraging kind of hard governance structures, right? Like they're truly restructuring teams in order to support integration, or they're trying to unlock strategic synergies across departments, or they're looking at kind of softer governance structures like um, really demonstrating visionary leadership. Um, I loved what Serena was saying a few minutes ago around how she's kind of embedded that into the company. Um, they're working to foster a collaborative culture. So there's, there's a couple of different ways that they're doing this, but it's really starting to happen. And I think it's happening at a lot of kind of the, the leadership levels. And the third piece that I'd mention is, um, There's a big there's a shift that's starting. There's a lot of work to be done around this, but there's a shift that's starting around integrating social and environmental sustainability agendas. Right. Environmental has always had a little bit um, of a faster pace because it tends to be easier to quantify compared to the social side of things. But they're starting to integrate kind of the E and the S so that their sustainability efforts essentially mirror the interconnected nature of social and environmental issues in practice. Just a a shout out to Mars, who's actually one of my uh, companies that I absolutely admire. They just came out with a really great new report with IDH um, that basically found that companies that do this, this integration between environmental and social, uh, experience greater resilience, productivity and growth, in addition to influencing better outcomes for people and planet. Um, So those are three things that I'm seeing that I think are going to be fast tracked in the next 10 years. But going back to what I mentioned earlier, we're all still kind of trying to figure out this piece. So there's a lot of work to be done.
0: Wow, this is awesome. Amazing. Thank you for sharing those examples. I'm going to go to Amy because I know, Amy, that you're, you're working with a lot of organizations as well. And I'm sure when it comes to gender equality, I mean, I'd like to be a fly in those rooms to hear some of those discussions. So what can you yeah. share with us about how organizations are thinking about it, putting into action, that kind of thing?
3: Well, I wanted to, I want to say one thing about Serena's company, which I think is very interesting. So we about women women led companies actually often have CSR baked into them, and when we for, we we track philanthropy in the database just to show what companies are doing. We try to actually see how much they spend. Emily as well, and um, and one thing we noticed early on is companies founded by women, such as Coach or um, Kate Spade. I try I forget the other ones, but though a gap. Have incredible philanthropy. It's often usually based around women's economic power because women who have been in business know that you're not going to actually help women unless women get some resources and capital and share so they can actually create difference in the world. So I think I love what you're doing, Serena. And this is very, the more women run businesses or underrepresented people, I think they're the same thing. So that's brilliant. And back to working systemically and having CSR not as an outset. We're doing this really interesting um, project or a project for you, some uh, uh, some of you, um, (laughs) with, we're doing, companies large companies are putting a gender lens on their supply chain and it's the un calls it gender responsive procurement so instead of just buying from women-owned companies they realize they have a huge footprint and mars mars is doing great work on this i wish they i wish they join us actually emily we've talked to them for years but so what what uh, logitech started this and zoetis and salesforce now are going to be working with us too with the idea is they ask their large vendors not the women-owned business or the black-owned business they ask their large vendors we want you to report on gender and uh, they make them so other do a gender fair assessment or something. And this is really powerful because it's using not just my individual dollars, saying I'm not going to buy your shampoo if you're not good to women, but we're not going to use it. We're, we want our vendors to do this, and I think this is, has huge potential. They do it in governments. The EU is doing this. Australia does it. South African companies and we haven't really reached this yet in America and I hope we I, I'm hoping to bring it to public procurement too because this is a huge lever the the EU government talks about how you can enact policy through procurement and I think that that's the supply chain right so it, it's so much power like they control so much money more than consumers even so and whatever we do I hope we can actually whatever social good we want to practice in our companies to bring it all throughout all, all throughout, all, um, all functions, and, and I'm gonna stop talking now. But yeah, this is. I wish we could just fix everything. You know, all that would. be No, cool. and
0: one of the things that I'll say to that is that yes, like procurement, um, really has a lot of influence, and I don't think the organizations or the people themselves really understand the power that they have and the dollars that they manage. Um, but one thing that I will say about diverse suppliers. The companies, if they're going to do good and they're going to invest in diverse suppliers, they have to do it the right way. I have a friend of mine that has been working with a large retailer and she has not been paid over $500,000 in a year. And she is a small business that now can't afford to run her trucks because the large organization has said, if you go out publicly, if you, if you sick a lawyer on us, we are pulling all of our business.
3: Mm-hmm. Are you and kidding me? No, that's terrible. I'm not kidding. So, this you know, the, Aaron Gallagher, here. there's a group called Have Her Back, and they wrote a new MSA for women owned businesses. Um, because these master service agreements that you sometimes have to sign, luckily, I haven't, we haven't had to do them. But you know, they're, they're incredibly onerous and unfair. So this this, I think, why doesn't we We should have more organizations fighting for this. This is absolutely yeah. wrong. Cause you to do business with the big guys. I, that's that's the worst yeah. I've ever heard, Sarah. That's, well, one thing about when you talk about people don't think about procurement in companies, like I don't know companies, I'm just a I'm just a journalist. But well, I will tell you that when um when when people started that Logitech started this this big program and got so much attention, the CPO, the chief procurement officer was got the attention of the CEO because this was, you know, people could see how important this was. And he was, he, that's how we, he talks to his other people in his field about doing this. He said, you know, I, I get meetings with my CEO. He can see how big this is and how yeah. transformative and, and they often are ignored. That's true.
0: Well, and one of the things that I'll say to that, going back to my comment earlier about pressure, is that we have to put consistent pressure um, and we need to make sure that organizations that are doing good and th- talking about diverse suppliers and all that kind of stuff are actually doing well by the suppliers that they are bringing into the fold. Um, but by by talking about the pressure, we have to put the pressure on, on a regular basis. And I'll give you one more example. And I know everybody wants to weigh in on this. I'm going to go to Leslie, then Serena, then Emily. Um, but one example was around uh, July or June, 2020. We all know what happened in 2020 with George Floyd and everybody, all the organizations were like, I want to get involved. I want to donate. I did it 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 it. I spoke to one of them who got inundated with calls. And by October, there was crickets. And half of them did not follow through with what they had said that they were going to do, and so this is what I mean by consistent pl- pressure: is that when there's not consistent pressure, and that's what us as individuals and communities and um, can do is to keep applying that consistent pressure, and that's what we
1: need. Sorry, Leslie, go ahead. No, it, it's okay. I'm like half thought it was more. <laughs> um. So so many. So many, so many things I'd like to follow up on. <laughs> um, this is a, just a great conversation, but the two points that, um, well, the, the point, the first point that I would like to follow up on the, which will lead me to my second one is baking this idea of like social responsibility, um, and, um, you know, environmental and social governance into actual businesses is, you know, it is critical. Um, so the organization that I've co-founded is called next economy trust. Um, We're a media and production company that's dedicated to developing programs that are designed to support the next economy. So we co-produce and present academically researched topics, Um, and I'm happy to tell you more about those, but there's three that we're investigating right now. One is called Rise of the Intangibles, around the intangible economy. One is called Diverse Capital, which focuses on diverse capital. And then the other is Reformation, which um, is, a, is a, a a lens that we've chosen to apply to um, um, storytelling around the transatlantic trade of enslaved Africans. But we present these research topics in accessible formats to our membership, which is 50% women non-binary, 50% underrepresented groups, and 20% Black. Well, why? Why is that our membership? Um, so the reason why we chose this, this path is because in my you know, previous uh, career, I was um, uh, in the on the leadership team, senior leadership team at TechCrunch, which is the publication of record for the startup and technology industry. And um, around 2014, um, we started to notice, which is a funny word to say noticed that there were just a lot of white men on the stage at the the flagship conference that was in three different cities globally um and was a very internationally recognized brand called TechCrunch disrupt and um you know said we really need to do something about this and it seemed like an insurmountable mountain because of all of the contacts and networks and everything that you know the, the the editorial team had and and um and you know, now I look today, almost 10 years later, and they had a mobility um, conference like two years ago. And, and I think 75% of the women for mobility founded, you know, startups were women. So, you know, it can be done. Um, But what we wanted to do is bake this into the very beginning. and, And it's because, you know, there, there is diversity science, which shows that economies, business, w- cultures will not thrive if they don't have diverse and inclusive voices as part of their day-to-day operations. They just they just won't. There's entire books about diversity science that says this isn't isn't possible. And so the reason why we chose these metrics was you know looking at London we're, we're doing place-based um um, you know, proof of concept. And in London, 50% of the the um, uh, people who live here are women. If you add up um, all of the protected characteristics that are um, in the Equality Act of 2010 here in the UK, um, uh, around 40% of uh, people here in London would identify as some type of underrepresented. So we rounded it up to 50% because we think that's important and then we um uh, included um we, we included black individuals individuals specifically because this is a um a population that um has been historically um uh, you know um, systematically um erased from a, a lot of history in the past and and had a lot of um oppression and so we decided we wanted to focus on that and so, you know, with this baked in, you know, it leads me to my second point, which is around, you know, weaving this this metric, these metrics throughout the entirety of our organization. When I, um, you know, said who I am, I did not say that I'm a white woman, but I am a white woman. I am a white American woman. I identify as an immigrant here in the UK, which um, people find startling because I'm white. <laughs> But I am here. I've been here for seven and a half years. I am not going anywhere. I have I'm married. I have a son and I have a dog. And that kind of tethers me to this country because that's where I I choose to be. Um and um, you know, but um, and my co-founder is a um a Jewish man. And so we are 50 of of you know the the type of of individual that we want to be part of Next Economy Trust membership, um, but you know through our board and through our hiring practices, when we work with researchers, when we work with editors, um, to you know shape our content and and bring it to life. You know, this is um, you know where we are really making sure that we're weaving it through the entirety of our organization, um, and I. You know, I I also look at our membership uh of people who are involved in Next Economy Trust. Um, that 50-50-20 will be the floor at all times, um, not the ceiling. So if we ever dip below that, we have a, a significant problem. But right now our membership numbers are in the the 80 percent. There's a lot of intersectionality. Right. Um, and then, you know, I also our vendors and and the people that we choose to work with need to, um, you know, understand that this is important to us. People who sponsor our work need to understand that it's important to us. And we're help- happy to help them learn how to incorporate these values into their organizations. And there's one uh, vendor that that I've worked with very closely since the start. And I've had to have a very—we're um, three years old. I've had I've had a very com- a hard conversation with them two months ago, where you know I said I've noticed that your your team demographics have shifted, um, and huh. you know this is this is something that's really really important to us. And huh. you know I really value your work. I would absolutely recommend you to other people, but but for the work that that we want to do with you. This is something that that either needs to shift again back to to how it was, or you know we we will find another uh, graphic designer that that we're going wow. to work with. Um, That's
0: quite and, the example. Well, we we how else would we live you our value? Have to live it though. No, yeah, I, what I'm saying <laughs> yeah. is like I'm very glad that you've shared that that yeah. that example because. When we talk about the lip service, but we talk about the actual, the actuality of the doing, you have just given us a very tangible example of when something changes with a vendor that you are not comfortable with and does not lie with your, with your values, that you can absolutely bring them to the table and say, we love working with you, but this doesn't work for us. So what are you going to do to change it?
1: Exactly. And a lot of people do not want to have those conversations. No, no. And it was not fun, but, but the, luckily the founder of this firm totally, he got it. He absolutely yeah, got it. And and good. he's willing, he, he recognizes it. You know, it's, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I, I've chosen to surround myself with people who are also willing to look at themselves. And, you know, it was not a surprise when I brought yeah. this up to him. And I will say one, one last thing, and then I'll, I'll pass the mic, so to speak, but um, i mentioned i am a, a white woman who is doing work in diversity and inclusivity space um and um every once in a while i have a wobble why am i what why, what what makes me the right person to do this you know do i need to be doing this um why am i a fraud you know like am i doing something that i'm not supposed to be doing and and i um my father in law is um he's been a lifelong anti racism campaigner um here in the UK and um, and um, worked on issues that were really critical to black Britons um, and black Londoners, but also has in the last stages of his career before he retired, he was doing interfaith work between Muslims and Jews. And um, I've married into a Jewish family. And whenever I have a wobble, I talk to him and he says, Leslie, I'm, um, you know, who would stand up for the Muslims if not the Jews? And who would stand up for the Jews, if not the Muslims. And I know that that's a really challenging concept for people to wrap their heads around right now, given this, um, you know, um, political climate that we find ourselves in. But it is something that I remember that, you know, I have the agency, I have um, the desire to be an ally and that. Makes me qualified, and as long as I'm doing this type of stuff, like with this the particular supplier, and living these values, um, that's what really matters. And 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 you know, I'm I'm committed to it. So, but
0: isn't isn't that the message though? Yeah, that organizations can take as well. Yes. I have the privilege. I have the money. I have the time. I have the people, mm-hmm. and so therefore, I can do just as good, if not more good than other people. Thank you so much for sharing that, Leslie. Serena,
2: I know you've been patiently waiting. Oh, yes. I I wanted to kind of touch a little bit on the small businesses because big businesses, yes, you're going to have a lot more arms that you're going to be, you know, wrestling. And I've worked in corporate um, for 17 years before I even started the agency. So I'm very familiar with both sides of it but I kind of wanted to share a story that ties into what we're talking about here. And it, it applies to small businesses. What do we do as a small business and how do these things impact us? So one situation when we were only three years old in business, we had a um, well-known auto company um, that we were working with, which was a big deal for a little small agency. Um, We had a hundred thousand dollar contract that was, um, you know, very close to being signed. And there was a situation where um, one of their leaders, which was, you know, a a male in his, in, and very aggressive, um, treated my staff, you know, with so much, um, I, I mean, just disrespect and um, completely, I would say kind of mowing, like just running right over them. And I remember this moment because this brand is such a huge brand in the auto industry. We had this $100,000 contract on the line. We're only three years old in business. And there's there's only five of us in the agency. But I refused to allow that behavior within my organization. And so I actually fired that client. Mm. Now, as a business owner, you can't afford to lose $10,000, let alone $100,000. Okay. And, but my team, my employees are much more important and having a healthy, thriving environment matters way more to me than any proposal amount that I have on the table. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you that from that moment on we created what's called client expectations. And it's the expectations that we have for the engagements that we we decide to work with. Now, I I'm going to be really honest. I'm not a multi-million dollar company, so I don't have the flexibility or the money to make those decisions. <laughs> But at the same time, I would rather nurture a healthy environment where people feel like they're valued and heard versus, you know, focusing only on the profit. And so we have not only the client expectations that we hold our clients accountable to, but we also have a little, you know, statement within that it's people over profit.
0: And I'm just going to jump in there because that just goes to, because we're talking about organizations doing good externally, but also internally, because what you're nurturing at your particular company goes out into the world and it can go, they can go out into the world with toxicity or they can go out in the world with positivity and spread that positivity. Positivity breeds positivity. Right. And so it's very important that we also think about, talk about and do the work internally. Now, Serena and Emily, I'm going to get you to you in a minute. But Serena, I know you've got a story behind, you know, why it's so important for you to have these expectations of your clients and nurture this kind of culture. Can you talk to us a little bit about that story, that journey and how you really came to, you know, bringing this to fruition
2: yeah so um growing up in foster homes and actually being a a white female cute little blonde haired (laughs) five-year-old in poverty which is completely the opposite of what people would think um and experiencing some of the most traumatic things that i had to encounter i lived in poverty I lived on the streets. I, I actually showed up at the food bank and had the box of canned food handed to me. I slept on park benches. I bathed in the school gym in the morning uh, in order to pretend like I was a normal kid going to you know high school that day. So I lived and breathed those moments. And that's why I'm so passionate about creating inclusion and, you know, giving people a voice because I felt like I had to fight for every, you know, everything that I I wanted in life. When I started the agency, after all of those traumatic experiences through life, my husband was the um, visionary. Even though it's 100% women owned, he was the face of the company and I hid behind the scenes. He was charismatic and magnetic and had this bright personality, but there was a dark side and that dark side seeped in to the organization. And there's things that I couldn't hide, which I thought I could because your personal life and your business are intertwined and what happened was is that after trying to fight and and for my team right and trying to grow my company i my my marriage and my husband who was also the vp of sales um was was like the uh, darkness that was breaking it apart and um When I finally found the courage to leave my husband in October of 2019, um, by March of 2020, he committed suicide. And so you can imagine that that didn't just impact my family and my kids and all of those things, it impacted every one of my employees, it impacted my clients. And so prior to this happening, I had hid everything. I thought I had to be the strong woman. I thought I I had to have it all together, that I had to look a certain way and talk a certain way and be the strong one. And when this happened in in our organization, in my life, I recognized that when I approached these things with empathy and authenticity and said, I am really struggling, that's when the most people rose up. And the beautiful part of this is that when you pour into your business, when you pour into the the voices and the employees and the people that are, are actually more important than me on the team. I mean, they literally carried me through mm. as I was going through my own healing process. And so my passion for inclusion, diversity, and women, all of that is so big because of some of the experiences that I personally faced.
0: Thank you uh, for sharing that, because that also what that does is it puts into perspective what people go through in a variety of different ways, and how it not only affects that person, but it also affects everybody on that team. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think it's important, like I said, for us to focus on the internal good that we can also do with our teams because it just gets amplified. So it thank you it. so much for sharing that. All right, Emily, you're up. You've been patient too. There's
4: so much to talk about. <laughs> it's a tough, tough transition to, to supply chains. I think, you know, we me, um, one as i've listened to everybody talk on this call i've resisted going down to the little emojis at the bottom and just having the constant clapping hands um because it's so impressive hearing everybody's different perspectives and your experiences and it's just wonderful to be on a call with a bunch of amazing women um and i think just just kind of taking a step back from the the things we've heard in the last few minutes, I think one of the things that I carry with in my work um, every day, but that is really poignant right now, is that people really need to be at the center, right? As like, regardless of the size of the company or the type of the company, people need to be at the center. And I think when you move toward those larger companies, it becomes harder because there's, of course, different obligations to shareholders and Margins and all of that. Um, but it's a, it's just a good callback that that really should be the center. And I just hope that, you know, through all the different avenues where we're working, um, that we're able to kind of continue to to bring that forward. Um, and I, I want to just comment on the, uh, gender responsive procurement, uh, Amy, that you were mentioning. I love that, um, gender responsive procurement is something that we think about and work on often. Um, and I think that it's, it's absolutely critical from a supplier standpoint, but also from kind of a, uh, a a humanity standpoint. Um, and so I wanted to just give an example that I, I think it, it really struck me. So last year I was in Indonesia, um, working in a number of different factories for a a large retailer. I'm sure we all shop at, um, and I was listening to the to the factory owners and also to the factory workers, right? And they were talking about um, the challenges they had around having long-term contracts for the majority, like 68% of women in garment are um, are women, 68% of workers. And so they were talking about challenges with contracts and all this. And I was trying to kind of understand and triangulate across all these different stakeholders, like what is the issue that we're actually seeing here, right? Because there's a lot of systemic challenges when you're talking about factories. And what really rose to the surface for me was actually around specific purchasing practices. So what I was realizing is that um, purchasing practices, which I, I knew in theory, but they have such a massive impact upstream in supply chains. So if you're talking about an apparel company, if an apparel company um, doesn't do long-term contracting, right, they're only going to contract with one of their 3,000 factories for two months. That means that almost all of the women that are working in the factory are going to be on short-term contracts, putting them in a really precarious working situation. Risky. If th- Yeah, if that same brand um, changes, for example, the color of their shirt from red stripes to black stripes, or they say we need this order in two weeks, What happens then is that all of a sudden, women that are already working in pretty um, precarious working situations, like 80-hour weeks is what's generally allowed, that all of a sudden goes into excessive overtime and really unsafe working conditions, right? Because they're trying to make this massive change in a two-week period in order to ensure they continue getting orders from this brand. Um, And so the brand that I'm talking about, I can't say who it is, but we've been working with them in these factories specifically to look at how we can change some of their procurement practices and test some pilot around longer term forecasting longer term um contracts and agreements in advance that they're not going to make last minute changes that ultimately end in those repercussions that i was just talking about and so like purposeful procurement is something that companies are starting to do there's so much more that's needed because the decisions that are made within inside the walls of you know HQ in europe or in america wherever it is have massive implications upstream yeah that procurement professionals don't always think about. To be honest, I mean, when you look at an organization, there's a lot of siloing across different departments in terms of metrics and incentives that they are given that drive kind of their performance and the way that they work. And if we're thinking about procurement and there isn't a gender lens, there isn't a human lens on it. They're looking at, you know, is it getting here in time? Is it at the right price point? The quality that we need. And so this goes back to what I will say a thousand times on this podcast and in perpetuity in life is that we need to integrate this work, integrate that human element into core business operations, because that's what will start to really move the needle.
3: Yeah. Amy. Right. I'd say one of the, the biggest problems is action, right? Most people, we you, t- you say that we've had this business case for diversity. For, we've known this for years, and nothing's been moving. Like, believe really, me, I have the metrics, like very little changes. So the business case doesn't really work. There has to be other pressures. And back to what Serena talks about is her own personal experience of being someone who didn't have advantages that people think she did. Like, if, she's the one who acts in empathy. And and like when we've had male champions, who male champions are the ones who drive our work because women don't have the power in most companies to do things. And it's often because they've experienced, like it could be a man who has a, a white-sounding name, but he's actually Hispanic and is one of the biggest champions of diversity across America. So that's I find this is how do we get people who haven't lived the experience of being a woman or yeah. other or underrepresented to take action? So that is, for me, what's key. They don't think about it. And I think, uh, I hope we can encourage more people to action because there's just way too much talk. I think $10 billion a year is spent on diversity consulting and nothing yeah. happens. So it's some sort of absurd tax that they pay to PwC and Deloitte and McKinsey and nothing changes. So we have to ask, is it, what, what can we do to change these systems?
0: Amy, it's like you like read my mind. That's exactly where I was going to go with this. So I appreciate it because now we have a great segue. <laughs> um, but it, it's interesting because one of the things that I hear the most from a lot of male allies is I have daughters. That is one of the biggest things that I hear. I have daughters. I don't want them to go through what you have gone through. Right. And so that's, that's where a lot of allyship um, that I've seen from males in general. But let's talk about because this can be mo- very overwhelming right? If you think about it, we need to make some changes externally. We need to make some changes internally. Empathy, you know, we're throwing around words like empathy and I need to have hard conversations with my vendors and I need to make sure that I take care of my diverse vendors and, you know, procurement is the answer. (laughs) And they're all really relevant and they're all really good and they're all things that we need to do right now. But how do we break it down into tangible ways that people feel like they can make an impact or put pressure on the right places or even elevate procurement professionals to understand their worth and the impact that they have in this particular discussion? So I'm going to open it up in talking about some of those solutions. So Amy, why don't we start with you?
3: I think ERGs would be a good place to start. What you is know, that? The employee, employee resource groups and companies. Thanks. Like if they they, they, they have power because they are groups of people who have power. And um, if it's just, you know, Amy, so-and-so in diversity who asks for something, that's not going to happen. But if all women or all the underrepresented people in an organization say we want our large vendors to report more on how they're doing, we don't want to just have, you know buy from white, white, white guy um, marketing, we want to buy from other companies they might have the, the power. So I I hope that there's more the more cross-sectoral work you see in corporations. Like in Logitech, who is, you know, my, Logitech is my hero for starting this program and you know you, you knew David, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do.
3: And He's so, been on the show. You know, he worked he has a show. Yeah, I miss him so much. He worked with his diversity person. This is a guy who had a procurement, had a billion dollar budget, worked with his uh, diver, uh chief of diversity, the chief of social good. And his COO, and they and they came up with this program, and that's brilliant. Like everyone working together across sectors, that's where we can make changes. So um, uh, I think Emily probably helps other companies do that. Emily, we should talk offline. I bet we could help companies do even better.
0: <laughs> we are making things happen on this episode, people. Magic is happening right before our eyes. Emily. <laughs>
4: Um. Yeah. So, I I mean, I have a, a, a laundry list of things, but I think uh, when I think about kind of multinationals, just bigger companies, changing incentive structures, right? I was mentioning this a moment ago, but like if we're talking about procurement, if their only metrics for success are around um, procuring their materials and it's really focused on cost, um you're never really gonna have it embedded, right? Then like gender or social impact kind of becomes a something that's optional. And when things are optional, they get dropped first when it comes down to the wire, right? So I think changing incentive structures is really critical. Um, I've mentioned this before, but like embedding this work into your business, which goes hand in hand with incentive structures, right? Having it be, I think, um, I don't want to misspeak but Patagonia if I recall correctly they kind of eliminated their sustainability department because it's now diffused across their entire business right how do we do that when it comes to impact Dei other areas right so that it actually is ingrained in every part of the business so it is a priority um and then the the last two pieces that I had mentioned would be layering a gender lens, Across everything that you're doing. And I think that that is applicable to any size company, right? Whether you are a teeny tiny company or a multinational, having a consistent way that you are thinking about and acting upon and measuring gender is really critical to advancing it in the long term. And anybody can do it. And then the final piece, which I think I struggle with a little bit, is really around like the business case. And I think that when we talk like building the business case for this work, right, because I think when the people that I talk to on a regular basis, a lot of it does come down to dollars. Right. And I have been really um, pushing internally for a shift of like the ROI mindset to be a little bit more expanded. Right. Like ROI and the way that we think about it in a traditional business sense is really about dollars. Right. Bottom line we're trying to move toward like a triple bottom line structure, right? When it comes to multinationals. Um, but building that business case in an expanded way so that you think about the the dollars, but also the resilience, the relationships, the the long-term viability of things. I think that that's a really important shift that we need to start making. And that as companies, especially the bigger ones, have a business case for this work, it allows them to build internal justification, right? I worked at a, um, a, a B Corp, uh, traditional medicinals. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with it. It's a very popular tea company. I'm sure everybody's had throat coat at some point in their life. Um, usually it's either the brand or the, the tea. Um, and then I've worked with all these multinationals, right? And it's kind of the same thing. There is a constant need when a company gets to a certain level to be able to justify and prioritize investments that they're making. And so I think as an industry, we need to get better at both expanding that definition, but also kind of breaking down some of those silos across environment, social and business so that you, are able to really justify why it is important.
0: Yeah. Awesome. And I'm going to expand on that because I've got a couple more questions I want to ask all of you, but I'm going to go to Leslie first, um, cause you had your hand up, um, Thank you. to be part of this conversation. Then I'll go to Serena, you know, around, you know, what,
1: where do we start? What do we do? So, um, it was, um, it was, it was interesting to hear these last uh, perspectives on this because, so my co-founder, um, is also the co-founder of a VC firm here in the UK and, um, has been in, in startups and technology for a really, really long time and is also very socially minded. So when he founded, when he went out on his own and founded his own VC firm after working at another one, he wanted to be in a specific neighborhood, um, in London, which is called Summerstown. And it is one of the most deprived neighborhoods in, in London and in the UK, The average life expectancy in Highgate, which is a very affluent neighborhood, it's like 85 and the life expectancy of of an average man in Somerset is like 56. So, wow. And they're separated by not even three miles. Um, So, but not only did he want to set up his firm there, but- um, is adjacent to King's cross and Houston. And it's, it's, you know, it's a very inner, inner London neighborhood, central London neighborhood. Um, but he also founded um, a, an organization alongside his, his uh, fund called uh, Phoenix court works. And Phoenix court is the name of the building that they are um, located in. It's where I work out of as well. And the idea was that as soon as he started his fund he wanted to set up this foundation right alongside it to to do work in the neighborhood because he didn't want mm. to just come into the neighborhood and you know be a VC in this very deprived area he wanted to 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 be able to um you know support the area where he was working. And so what's really amazing is when um when you encounter people who work at this fund which is called Local Globe they're all very, very socially minded, and they all contribute time and resources. You know, other resources that they have at their um, disposal to to Phoenix Court Works and and um, anybody who comes into any type of orbit with this firm, like me, does the same thing. But following on that, um, following the murder murder of George Floyd um, in in June of twenty twenty, they held the first in what has ended up being three and a half years of quarterly um, step away from your normal business work and focus on systemic inequality within venture capital and within the startup industry. Mm. And That's much needed. there Yes. Looking at their part in it, which is why I was very cynical when you said half of the half of the organizations that put up a black square are not doing anything anymore. Like most like I'd say it's so much higher than that. OK, I mean, but they be, yeah. you know, I know I mean, but I'm also incredibly cynical about this. Um, But they they started this work, um, you know, in in. Conjunction with those black squares, which the entertainment industry did under the show must be paused. But what they did beyond that was commit to doing it quarterly and they committed Mm -hmm. to doing it for three years and then they committed to doing it for seven years and then they've committed it. We've committed now through 2030. And, um, and the, the grounding bit of this work, because it's really easy to spin off into a variety of different, um, you know, less connected areas, but where can, where can we do this work and where can, you know, next economy trust be, be supportive of this work is, you know, they look at, you know, the, the black talent within their firm and within the companies that they back. They look at the founders that they back. What's the diversity metrics there. They look at, um. You know, the GPs within their organization, who are they hiring for venture capital roles? They look at LPs, the limited partners who put money into venture capital, you know, what what's the demographics there? And then how can they work to shift that? and um, and so, you know, we just had our our fifteenth session yesterday where everybody takes the day away from normal business operations and, and does, you know, we, we have um, a morning session, which is internal where we, we, you know, look at, look at our work that we're doing. And then in the afternoon, it's an open session where anybody in the community can join. And, um and it was a working session yesterday to talk about how we want to, it is to move forward together and, you know, like using data and, and all sorts of stuff to make this case, but it's just, really refreshing to to be around people who are, you know, not only just like-minded, but really want to affect change and knowing that if they can encourage mm-hmm. and influence five other really big name VC funds in London to hire a, a black venture capitalist, which sounds really silly to say that you just need to hire one, but no, they don't have that. Like the amount of change that that will affect in terms of founders and in terms of people hiring practices and things like that. And it's just, they know that they've got this in them to be able to influence that and and they're really committed to it. And, um, I don't have very much time to talk about this, but you know, there's other ways that I'm I'm involved in that that I'd um, be more than happy to share with you afterward. And when it does launch, you know, you can we yeah. can share it with with the network. But um, you know, around aff- affecting the the number of black LPs that are out there um, is a is a research project that I'm right. currently hoping to launch in, in Q1. So, awesome. um, so yeah, I just think it's you know having it baked into into that type of lockstep. Um, within an organization is really rare and really special. So
0: three things that I took from that was one was real life examples of how you can change a day Just by, you know, a meeting and having internal conversations around it and then bringing in outside perspectives for the afternoon to talk more about the problem. Like those are real life ways that you can make internal changes within a business, which I really liked. Surrounding yourself with those people who are making the change, affecting the change, that kind of thing as well. So and then also being intentional. Like being very intentional about what those actions are, not just a broad thing. Oh, we want to do this and check off a box. Like you're very intentional about the fact that we want to hire one. And that one is going to affect a whole bunch of change. So thank you very much for sharing
2: that. Serena. So I kind of want to bring it to this perspective is that there is a fine balance between not going out of business. and. And being able to pour into all of these different programs, because yes, in order to pay my staff, I have to have profit, right? And in order to give back to the community in different ways, we have to have happy employees and we have to be thriving. So there's a fine balance constantly between people and profit and constantly between growing the business at a level that is still investing in each person, very intentional, all of those things matter. But I think at the very, very core at that the foundation of any business, it starts with their cultural beliefs, their values, their expectations. If they're not setting KPIs, goals, expectations around these important topics, they're not living and breathing it, and it's not going to stick. It just won't. You're absolutely back to what Emily was saying, is if their KPIs, if their goals is all profit related, because they have to pay the people that work there, (laughs) right? There's that balance, but there's not another part of their goals or KPIs that are incentivized by some of these really important changes Mm -hmm. that need to be made. They just won't happen because Mm -hmm. either they won't make enough profit, right? Because they're so focused on giving back and sacrificing. And I'm the queen of this, by the way, I I will sacrifice myself (laughs) and sometimes my own, you know, financial situation to give back to my team, right? But in a larger organization, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. And So you have to have the balance of, of people and profit, but people always come first. And the only way to implement or create a foundation is to have core values, to have expectations, to create these clear lines, in order for people to understand them and know that they're all working towards the same goal.
3: Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Amy, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I was like, what you're talking about, what, what you, I mean, I think it's very important to have to, uh, KPIs or measurements, like people want to do good, but they don't actually know how to do it, or they think like it. And when it comes to gender, people often say, well, we're doing great. We have a girl in marketing, and we have maternity leave. So that's one way that we gender fair brings value to companies. That we let companies see: no, you need, you know, you want to have women's leadership, you want to have pay equity studies, you want to have, you know, buy from door suppliers. And so when you give, I think when people, when people can see what is what they can do to be better, they can do it. Otherwise, it's just this amorphous idea of I want to do good for women or for underrepresented people. So the more systems we have, um, the more helpful it is to people. And uh, instead of just Try to be good.
0: We are coming to the end, um, but I've got two more things that I want to talk about. So, one is an example of organizations. Can each of you give me three to five organizations that are doing good now that people can go and look into? Um, potentially volunteer, donate, be a part of, that kind of thing, or even just an organization that's doing good, uh, that's a good example. And then the second thing is is I want to know what's one thing people should walk away from this conversation thinking about or taking action on. So let's start with the examples of some companies, and I'm going to start. So one of the things that Emily, I think, said earlier was about – Taking your team and actually doing good in your communities with the team. And one of the ways that I've done that in the past is with Habitat for Humanity. You can actually take your team and you can go and help build a home. And it's actually a very, very, very good experience. Um, The other one would be Blended Pledge because... I am the founder of the Blended Pledge, and to Leslie's point, we need to see more diversity on industry stages, and that's what the Blended Pledge does, because we give away grants so that we can cover travel, because it's the number one barrier, Um, and then to Amy, you had mentioned uh, women-led businesses that actually um, spend time on portions of their business to make sure that they give back to women-owned businesses. And Tory Birch is a very good example of that because they actually have a grant program that goes back to women-owned businesses to help them move forward. So those are three from me. And now I'm gonna pass it over to you. Serena, do you have three to five organizations that you could mention?
2: Yes, so what we do within uh, within our company is we actually give back to our community and nonprofits nationwide. And one of the ways that we do that is we actually have a page on our website that highlights every single one of these nonprofits. And then um, in some of our campaigns, we've actually said, you know, for the next 10 months, it's 10 months of giving for us. And what we're doing is we're actually taking 10% of any new client engagement and donating it to one of the charities of their choice. Awesome. That is a small way, but I mean, there's so many. There's, so what, what is that website that people can go to to see? So pulsemarketingteam.com um, is our website. And if they just click on community at heart, it'll show them all the nonprofits that we absolutely believe in. Um, uh-huh. So many. But you, then- just,
0: <laughs> you just reminded me that I actually have an impact page as well yeah on like, my I'm website like, and there's like Kiva, water.org, you know
2: harvest 107 we give on a monthly basis so anyways those are all ways that every organization can do little things to give back yeah um, awesome. but then another company that does this very well um in multiple ways is the parks project and it was a group of volunteers that recognized that the national parks are just completely, you know, um, I would say that not being cared for at the the same standard. Um, And what they've done is their mission is to leave it better than they found it. And that's a really good example of a company that's also making a huge impact with little changes. And that's all it is, is each of us making those little changes actually changes a, a much bigger yeah.
0: world. Awesome. Thank you. Amy, do you have three to five organizations that people could look into?
3: Oh, gosh. Organizations. I thought, I thought you meant companies when I read organizations. But um, I would say one organization I love is Vote Run Lead in America because uh, I think it's very important to have women in Congress because we, we can't really get anything done for people without more women in Congress. And uh, that, uh, Melinda Gates just made a big pledge to that. Uh, Moms First by Reshma Shajani is also really powerful. I mean, there's so many. Um, just a few. Oh gosh, I think I'm going to stop at that. That's, that's all I'm going to ask. And then what individual actions, I would say, we're going to that one now. Individual actions, I believe in the power of the purse. I think that we could try at try to add, buy from women-owned businesses as much as as possible. I do. I mean, although I measure large, you know, Fortune 500 companies, I buy from women-owned companies. I ask when I go into a coffee shop, I say, is this owned by a woman? And uh, you could do the same thing. There their guidebooks for you know, buying black. You could buy for women. And that is so easy to do. It's not hard. Yeah. We could all try to move a little bit of capital away from where capital's been stagnant.
0: Yeah. The, what I would add to that is stop asking your friends who own businesses for discounts or free things and spend money on them. Yes. And, oh, that's Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And... What was the other thing? I've lost my train of thought because I was like, that's a I was good like, one. Yes, sister, yes. <laughs> and also, it doesn't cost any money to repost, share, like, comment, et cetera. So, if you don't have the money, there are other ways that you can actually do that. All right, Emily, three to
4: five. Oh, goodness. Um, well, so I would say just because I'm the multinational person on this call in terms of where I'm focused. You can feel good about shopping with Mars Brands and Target. Those are both two companies that I am incredibly impressed with the work that they're doing in their supply chains and the really, really big, complicated challenge that they're trying to tackle in a way that I don't see others. Um, So I know we all probably shop at Target. I feel like that's always a good, good reaffirmation. Um, Individuals, I couldn't agree more with Amy in terms of voting with your dollar right? Know where things are coming from, spend some time educating yourself so that you are buying from places where there are ethical practices um, and definitely buy local as much as possible. And then in terms of nonprofits, I mean, I'll just give a little boost to care here because that is where I work. Uh, As I mentioned at the beginning of this call, care has been around for 78 years and I've been working here for four years and I'm like, consistently just so impressed with the depth of work that we're doing across 111 countries, deep in communities, with like community-led approaches. Um, everything is women-centered that we do. Beyond doing some of the corporate supply chains that I've been talking about, we do an enormous amount of humanitarian work in crises. And I just I just continue to be so impressed with, with everybody within the organization because as we were talking about earlier in terms of a commitment to purpose, like it's just pervasive across the organization. So Awesome. awesome.
0: Awesome. The other thing that doesn't cost any money is lending your time and expertise to nonprofits. That is another way that you can actually um, help
1: out as well. Leslie, three to five. So I mentioned Oddbox before. I still think it's wonderful um, here in the UK. There's another one that is very specific to my household, which is um, it's a company called Micro, and I don't know if they're in the states because I did not have a small child when I was living in the states. But um, they're scooters for children from two all the way, you know, up to grown up age. Um, the scooter decks, the helmets that they sell, all of that is made from like recycled fishing wire. Amazing. Wow. Um, so they're doing good for the planet. They set out to do this. It's a women-owned business. Um, all of the parts are replaceable. So they're meant to be, you know, passed on, passed down, repaired rather than thrown away. And I love being able to teach my little one, you know, we use public transport a lot here because I have not wrapped my head around driving on the wrong side of the road. After I tried it and once. And half years. Still, it was awful. No, no, my anxiety in was it. through
0: the roof, just going to say.
1: Not interested. So we do a, he scoots, you know, and he can, you know, we can walk as fast as we need to walk because he's got a scooter and I, you know, he turns five on Sunday and he's getting a new one, like the next level up. He's going to be very excited. Um, so we love that, but also, you know, um, I'm also really into, um, um, fashion and style and, um, and the circular economy and, a, a brand that I respect very, very much, um, is called Vestiaire Collective. And, um, it is, um, it, an enormous marketplace for secondhand, um, luxury clothes, but also like high, high street clothes. But one of the things that they did that's really, really impressive over the last year was announced that they are no longer taking fast fashion. Okay. No more. Wow, no more fast fashion will be found on um for resale on their site. and um and that's a really big stance to take. yeah, um but they um they felt really committed to it. and I really respected that because, you know, a, a few years ago, I was, when I got pregnant and then after I was pregnant, I was going through my closet and I was like, wow, I don't wear any of this stuff. I can't see myself wearing this stuff. And, and you know, I was noticing the brands that like repeatedly showed up. So and then I made a conscious choice not to buy those brands ever again. And mm-hmm. almost five years later that I can say that I have absolutely held to that. And so, you know, this whole combination of being smart about where our money goes, I think, is really, really important. And that accountability yeah. is um it's something i feel really strongly about, you know, what my business you know, is founded on as well as, you know, this this accountability of the the membership that's part of, you know, consuming the the content that we put out, you know, in order to affect change, people who are who are in leadership positions need to know that the rest of the public is watching. and yeah. so i think that that's um, a really big example that we can all set.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Keep the pressure on. Everybody's watching. A couple of other organizations that I didn't mention, Trans New York and Billion Strong, they are friends of the Blended Pledge as well. So I want to make mention of those. Serena, you didn't give us your one thing that people should walk away from this thinking about or taking
2: action on. So I'll give you the last word. Um, You know, I would say that the, the one thing for me is it starts with us. It starts with the leaders and we have to be willing not only to sacrifice in certain areas of our lives, but we all we have to be willing to fight for the things that we believe in, in order to create companies that are going to eventually give back to everyone to create companies where people are excited and passionate to come to work, to create companies that are actually making our our world better it's up to us first. And I think that's where we really need to focus is we have to change ourselves first before we can change the world.
0: Awesome. Well, as the world continues to face difficult and turbulent times, initiatives for good have to move from a nice to have to must have. And while some organizations have a way to go, there are so many brands doing incredible and inspirational things that we can all learn from. We don't have to have massive budgets, thousands of staff or hours worth of extra time. There are creative ideas we can employ in our communities and meaningful initiatives we can try. to really make an impact on our world. As ever, it's more about discovering those ideas, feeling inspired, and just making a start when making an impact in this world feels overwhelming. Just remember, it's all about progress, not perfection. Don't forget that you can reach out to me or any of the guests on social media if you have anything you'd like to add to what we've talked about today. And remember to join us again next time on Blended when we'll be diving into more insightful and valuable conversations on diversity, equity, inclusion, and everything in between. So thank you so much to Leslie, Emily, Serena, and Amy. It takes courage to be on the Blended podcast, and you have all shown bravery today just by showing up, but also speaking to us authentically and sharing your perspective. So thank you so much for joining me on the Blended podcast today.